My name is Kenny Caps, and my co-host is Yolanda Brunson Cerebo. Hey, guys. She's a fashion designer from Brooklyn, and I direct a nonprofit in Asheville, North Carolina. On the side, we're both fitness coaches, patient advocates, and we have cancer. This is the Myeloma Team Podcast. Today is January 20th, 2020, and as a country, we're celebrating the life and lessons of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Recently, Yolanda and I interviewed Dr. Nicole Gormley, the Director of Hematologic Malignancies with the Food and Drug Administration, and we thought today would be the perfect day to share our conversation with her on how multiple myeloma has impacted the African-American community and how that same community struggles to be adequately represented in medicine and patient advocacy. Because we had such a fun time talking to Dr. Gormley, we broke the interview up into two different episodes. Dr. Gormley enlightens us on how cancer treatment in the African-American community has traditionally differed from other patients and what healthcare providers are doing to change when and how this culture seeks treatment. Let's get to it. Thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us. I know that Yolanda's probably told you a little bit about what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. And you know that both Yolanda and I also are myeloma patients as well as advocates. And Yolanda, of course, is doing her own thing to advocate for myeloma patients and to talk about keeping healthy and active is part of what she does as well as what I do. And I actually direct a nonprofit down here in North Carolina for blood cancer patients. We encourage them to stay healthy and active through treatment. Yeah. We wanted to just talk to you a little bit today about some of the stuff that you do and how myeloma dramatically affects the African-American community, but is not being addressed in the African-American, or at least towards the African-American communities same way. I also wanted to ask you just a couple of questions about minimum residual disease. First, I think Yolanda wanted to sort of introduce you and kind of talk about how you two met. It was a pleasure to meet you at this year's AACR. That was the Asia Disparity Conference. So you and I had like a one-on-one and you kind of just dropped some real interesting notes. And I thought it would be cool to possibly interview you. So here we have it as today we're interviewing. We're here today speaking with Dr. Nicole Gormley, who is the acting division director for the Division of Hematologic Malignancy um, at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Dr. Gormley joined the FDA in 2011 and previously served as a clinical reviewer with the multiple myeloma clinical team lead. While in these roles, she has actively engaged with the multiple myeloma community on the development of novel endpoints, including minimal residual disease and methods to address racial disparities. Dr. Gormley completed fellowship training in hematology 
and critical care at the National Institute of Health and served as the Deputy Clinical Director at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute prior to joining the Food and Drug Administration. So again, Dr. Gormley, we appreciate you um, being part of our podcast, and we just wanted to start our questions. And Kenny, if you want to start. So I guess the first question is, what is the percentage of myeloma patients that are African-American in the United States? Is, is there a number for that? Yeah, that's a great question. So multiple myeloma is one of the more common team malignancies that we see. Unfortunately, multiple myeloma, there tends to be some differences along racial and ethnic minority status. So African-Americans tend to develop multiple myeloma at a greater incidence compared to Caucasians. Specifically, they have a twofold greater incidence compared to Caucasians just in the development of multiple myeloma. And then also, multiple myeloma occurs earlier in African Americans compared to Caucasians. And so, generally, there's one study that showed that African Americans develop multiple myeloma at a median age of 66 um, compared to 71 in Caucasians. And African Americans also have um, an earlier or greater incidence of the precursor state, smoldering multiple myeloma, and MDOS as well. So it, it, it tends to occur earlier and there's a greater incidence in African-Americans. Now, is that smoldering myeloma? I mean, I, I don't know if there's studies on this yet, but is there a longer period of smoldering myeloma before advancing to the next stage for African-Americans? Yeah, there's some studies looking at that. Unfortunately, oftentimes they're kind of small, so there's no definitive you know, knowledge per se about this. But um, in general, it tends to occur um, at a greater frequency, even in these earlier precursor states. And, and everything seems to be shifted a little bit. You know, like the precursor state developed earlier, multiple myeloma developed earlier uh, compared to Caucasians at an earlier age. And so, but in terms of the, the lag time and, and absolute development, you know, less is, a little bit less is known. But in general, all of them tend to occur a little bit earlier in African-Americans compared to Caucasians. So what are the racial disparities that you see within the myeloma community? Yeah, um, so there's a lot of disparities, and I'll, you know, focus most of my comments on what we see here at the FDA with reviewing drugs, but, and I'll just sort of lay out maybe a lot of the disparities. Um, there's disparities with regards to access to care, and uh, there are also disparities uh, in terms of the types of therapies often that patients receive. Um, there's been some studies which show that African-Americans receive transplants less frequently than Caucasians. And what we see most frequently here at the FDA is there's a huge disparity in terms of clinical trial participation. Um, so, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, African-Americans have a greater incidence um, compared to Caucasians. If you look at the, you know, U.S. patient population, African-Americans represent 13% of the U.S. patient population. Um, if you look at the incidence of multiple myeloma, so you take all patients with multiple myeloma in the U.S., African-Americans represent 20 to 30% of the U.S. patient population with multiple myeloma. Um, we did a, um, a study um, looking at all of the uh, trials that were submitted for approval, and we published this a few years ago. We looked at all the trials that were submitted for approval for multiple myeloma between the years 2003 and 2017, um, and uh, we looked at the percentage of African-Americans in that trial um, or in that cohort of uh, studies, and African-Americans represented only 4% 
Um, so despite the fact that African-Americans, you know, represent 20 to 30 percent of the U.S. patient population with multiple myeloma, they were only 4 percent in our clinical trials that were used for approval. Uh, so there's a real disparity there in terms of having, um, you know, knowledge um, about how these specific products uh, perform in terms of safety, efficacy, et cetera, in the African-American patient with multiple myeloma. Is that because they're not being targeted as potential patients within the studies, or is it because they're they're just unaware that the studies exist, or is it something else? Is it cultural, or or is it all of those things? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question, and I think it, it is really multifactorial. Um, I think it really is all of these things, and I think it's going to take a you know sort of broad approach to try to address it. Um, I think some of the issues are you know. Um, in general, you know, a lot of trials now are conducted outside the U.S. Um, and so, you know, if you are, if the trials are primarily conducted outside the U.S., um, either in Europe or Asia, et cetera, you're not going to have a lot of African-Americans. Um, and I think there's also, you know, um, a component of, you know, we are some of the, even within the U.S., um, you know, there's some sites that do a better job of enrolling African-Americans, either because of their location or because of, you know, cultural competence training that their physicians have undergone, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, um, our, it would be to our advantage if we, you know, could target those sites and, and work to increase enrollment in those places that we know have a history of uh, enrolling, you know, sufficient number or a large number of African-Americans. Um, so, but, you know, this is a real um, issue of importance to us at the FDA because, you know, we make decisions and our job is to protect and promote the public health. That's our mission. Um, and so when we have um, large um, holes in our data, so to speak, you know, that, um, and, and we don't have you know, robust uh, information in this patient population, it really poses a problem uh, for us. And so one of the things that we're doing to address this is that we are um, partnering with a lot of um, other um, stakeholders in this area to try to um, address this issue from a multi-disciplinary approach. Um, So we have, um, we're partnering with uh, AACR um, and we plan to have a public workshop uh, on February 13th uh, here in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., uh, where we're actually, the, the focus of the meeting is discussing um, underrepresentation of African Americans in multiple myeloma clinical trials. Um, and we are bringing in um, a lot of different stakeholders uh, as part of this workshop to try to really discuss how we can address this um, together as a community, um, because it really will take a community effort to try to address it. First off, what would be, could you def- uh, tell us what AACR is? Yes. Uh, oh, goodness. That's a, um, the uh, American uh, <laughs> Association. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> it's, the, <laughs> it's the American Association for Cancer Research. Oh, yeah. all right. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> sure. And, and so what would you say is, um, I, I guess, also, who are the participants? Who are the people that you're, that you're targeting for the AACR meeting in D.C. in, in February? Yes. So um, it's a public workshop, so it's open to everyone, um, and and we want people to come and participate. Um, We are including um, a lot of, uh, we're working with a lot of other groups as well. Um, We're working with ASH, um, the American Society for Uh Technology. We're also working with NMA, uh, the National Medical Association, um, and we have a lot of uh, academic representatives right. as well. And I should mention we have a few other organizations. We're working with um, LLS, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society on this, um, and um, a couple other uh, groups as well. But, you know, we're bringing in academics. Um, we're, uh, I'm co-chairing this 
um, with uh, another of my FDA colleagues, Lola Fashion-Ajay, and then also Ken Anderson. Um, and um, we, so we have a lot of academic uh, thought leaders that are involved in this project. Um, Sagar Lanayal from uh, Emory, uh, Vincent Raj Kumar from Mayo Clinic, um, uh, Sikhar Alwadi from Mayo in Jacksonville, Florida, and a host of others are really coming together to um, discuss this as well. Um, and then we also have invited uh, industry, our industry uh, colleagues, uh, to participate in this workshop as well. Um, and, you know, the goal being that, yes, we've identified this as an issue, um, but it's really going to take participation and discussion from every aspect of the care uh, multiple myeloma to really address this. And we have also um, part of this workshop, and I should just, you know, mention as well, we have a lot of uh, patient advocates that are participating um, and really providing a lot of valuable feedback as well. I mean, ultimately, all of this, you know, rests and begins with the patient. And so um, really trying to make sure that we have more knowledge and information and uh, encourage clinical trial participation in African-Americans in the disease area of multiple myeloma, but, you know, across oncologic diseases. That was actually one of my questions, because it sounds to me that, again, all of those people need to be a part of that. Um, you need more, um, not just uh, academics, but you also don't just need patient advocates. You also need industry leaders in that. And I'm assuming that would include pharmaceutical companies being the largest ones that were probably leading that, or at least the research institutions that are connecting to those. So like uh, Emory and, and Mayo, Dana-Farber, Stanford, mm-hmm. and so forth. I'm assuming that they want to be a part of that. That's fantastic. I'm glad you're, you're, you're doing that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, we do have a lot of industry participants as well. And I think highlighting and underscoring is going to be the first start. So I'm really excited about this upcoming workshop, as I think it really has a huge potential to have an impact on the field. And you said February 14th? No. 13th, the day 13th. before Valentine's Day. The day before Valentine's Day. <laughs> so February 14th. I should remember that date. Uh, Yes, but how do the people who don't know about it as poor advocates in this area and caregivers, how can they help, like, you know, put some light to this subject? Because sometimes I feel that the mission for a lot of these diseases is kind of out there and it's talked about with a small group. And then I kind of feel like, not that it's, that is dropped, the issue is dropped, but I feel like it doesn't get still the attention that it needs while a lot of people are suffering with it. So how can a patient advocate and caregiver, like what could Kenny and I do to put the mission out about what is multiple myeloma? Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a huge part of this is actually um, just getting the word out. And I think there's a huge component of this, right? Um, and, and to begin to unpack it is going to be undoubtedly a huge challenge. But I think there are a lot of just underlying basic misunderstandings about clinical research to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think sharing knowledge is, is, I think, a key component of this. And, and that's only really sort of, I, I think that's the beginning of all of this. It's, it's, it's part of it is, you know, a large part of it is, is changing perceptions of what clinical trials and what clinical research participation means. And I think underscoring the importance of it. And so, you know, I think, you know, we can tackle this from the FDA side of when we see, a, you know, 
clinical trial product or when we interact with industry. But I think it's also going to take a grassroots effort, you know, um, to change the perception of what clinical research and clinical trial participation really is. Um, and I think that that is a huge part of it. And I think then as well, you know, opportunities for those two sides to come together. So opportunities where the FDA can hear from patients or opportunities where, you know, we can share what the FDA does is, is, is also, I think, really helpful um, to begin to address this issue. Right. Yolanda and I obviously are coming from different perspectives on this. I mean, she's from Brooklyn. I'm from Mountains, North Carolina. So we're mm-hmm. obviously different cultures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she also has a perspective in the African-American community health-wise that I don't. And she's actually educated me a lot on perceptions of that. What would those grassroots efforts be from both of us, uh, honestly, in order to encourage, educate, inspire others to be a part of this to where we don't see these disparities anymore? Yeah, you sort of highlighted the differences that are exist between the two of you, but I, you know, I, I feel a little bit remiss in not having mentioned it earlier. I mean, there's also disparities in terms of um, access to care in in very in urban and rural areas as well. You know. Oh well, there you go. True. As well, um, that I think you know we need to pay attention to and make sure that we're addressing. And I think the the outreach and the activities that you do will probably look very different in in terms of how that may play out. But I think that sort of still just sharing your experience and sort of providing knowledge and education are our key fundamental aspects that will underscore both of your approaches, even though they may look very differently. So we had here at the FDA, we've done a few of these types of efforts where we've actually gone out into the community. Um, we have a project here that we're working on specifically in the Oncology Center of Excellence, where several of us go out to various community settings just to share knowledge and experience about what the FDA is, what it is we do, and what clinical trial participation really is. Gone to various churches and done this program um, and uh, other settings like that. But I feel like that's, that's sort of what the grassroots effort has to look like. There's just so much misinformation and you know lack of understanding that at the grassroots level, uh, you can really sort of be a huge advocate to change, helping people understand what is a clinical trial. Uh, I think there's a lot of understanding about what a clinical trial is and, and the potential benefits uh, that this uh, as a clinical trial participant, um, not just, you know, as your as an individual, but I mean, those uh, potential benefits exist as well, but sure. also uh, to benefit the larger community um, that by sharing your experience and the knowledge that's gained from your clinical trial participation will help others. And, and I think oftentimes people don't understand how valuable that information is. We rely on that information here at the FDA to make decisions about whether or not a drug should be approved or not. You know, it's mm-hmm. the, and, it, and it's on a very large you know, scale and that we're looking at data from hundreds of patients. But, you know, it's that participation of, uh, at an individual level that gets us there, really. Um, sure. And if we don't have that information, um, then, you know, we're really sort of flying behind. Um, and so I think getting that, that, that message out there that your participation is vital for us is really key. For me, it was a blood test that triggered my doctor to say something is wrong. And I think sometimes a lot of people in general, whether black, white, whatever, they may not get certain 
red flags, if you will. And I think if it's in a black community, maybe if they go to a clinic, let's say, and they do blood work, I don't feel that the flags are kind of out there for them to be diagnosed early. So if someone isn't feeling well, certain signs that maybe it's multiple myeloma, but it's similar to other ailments you may have, what could a person do and what questions should they ask to maybe light fire under their doctor to probably test further? Yeah, you brought up a, a lot of great points there. Um, I think, you know, the first one is to sort of, um, and I encourage everyone to do this, to, do this uh, to sort of be your own advocate. And, and I think that's all along the continuum. Like even before you have a diagnosis, even if it's just routine checkups, ask to see your lab, get a copy of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, if you see something that's high or abnormal, like go back and ask about it. And I think oftentimes I think just there is, and I think that's a, a perception is that oftentimes I feel like we put a lot of trust and, and we should in our care providers, but it requires uh, active engagement on our part as well. And I, I think pushing for knowledge is the fundamental aspect of this that underscores the entire process and is really critical. So, you know, if you're, even if you're healthy, asking to get a copy of your lab report, asking what type of routine screening are you doing for and recommend for my health and, and then compare what the answers that you get, therapy on the internet, et cetera. What is appropriate screening for a person of my age and ethnicity, et cetera. So I think just being a, a, a real advocate and for your health is, is, is really important. And then I think the other thing is trying to find and learn as much as you can once you are diagnosed about the, the disease uh, and going to your doctor visits with a list of questions already written out. Um, because it can be very, you know, disorienting going to the physician's office and there's tons of people and you're getting wheeled and tested here and there. And so um, having that list designed and written down in hard copy or print beforehand can be really helpful. And even handing a copy of that list to the nurse before you see your physician to say, these are the questions I want to address during my visit. Um, right. There's a really huge component of making sure that you get the information uh, that you need. And then I think just asking um, important questions as well. So what is the cytogenetics if you have our diagnosis with multiple myeloma? What is my cytogenetic risk profile based on the, the test results that you see? How often do you plan to assess this? Are there any clinical trials that would be appropriate for my participation or not? And so, you know, I think um, asking these type, type of questions really is the best uh, uh, avenue to try to make sure that you're advocating and, and that your health is best uh, preserved. And I think from our end, you know, on the side of physicians, I think there's things and questions that we need to answer as well. We don't know as a community yet the appropriate age to start screening for multiple myeloma, in particular among African-Americans. There are some ongoing studies that are specifically looking at this question. Dr. Irene Gobrial uh, at State of Barber has a study um, called the PROMISE study where they're specifically screening African-Americans older than uh, 40 or 45 just to see and determine what is the appropriate age that we should start screening. Um, so again, I think even though maybe healthy or, or, or not have any diseases, et cetera, you can still participate in this, in, in the screening question. Say, hey, what is the appropriate uh, informa- age at which they should start screening for multiple myeloma, given that it occurs at an earlier age in African-Americans and has this greater incidence? And so there's things that as a community that we all can do, and I think that that's really important. Right. 
Come back for our next episode on January 27th. We'll talk about minimum residual disease and has cancer already been cured? We'll have the answers in part two of our interview with Dr. Nicole Gormley. If you are interested in being interviewed on the Myeloma Team podcast, want to know more about us, download episodes, or if you want to become a sponsor, visit us at myelomateam.com.